We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to go from verses 1 to 19. Uh, There is no possible way I will cover everything that there is uh, to cover in this section of Scripture. I imagine uh, Vic will continue this this conversation about uh, this passage next week. So let's read God's Word. Hear the Word of the King. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man named Tarsus, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Please be seated. So before we get into the passage uh, specifically, let's remind ourselves of just a little bit about who Saul is. In Acts 22, Saul, who by this point is now known as Paul, informs us that he was born in Tarsus of the region of Cilicia, which is located in the Mediterranean Sea in Turkey, approximately 120 miles from the modern uh, border of Syria. Now, this becomes relevant a little bit later on, and as Vic reminded us a few weeks ago, Saul was a Pharisee, which was a sect of Judaism, who were experts in the law and lived an outward life of apparent holiness and strict adherence to the law. Jesus, however, referred to them as whitewashed tombstones full of dead men's bones, An accusation which, of course, drew attention to their outward appearance of holiness, but in reality, their hearts remained dark and dead. And we see Saul first introduced at the end of Acts 7 and then in the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And so as we see here in in the beginning of of chapter 9, 
Verse 1, it says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. Now, as part of this great persecution uh, mentioned at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, Saul goes to the high priest to seek authority or seek and subsequently receives letters that it says. Now, as part of Israel's governmental structure, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes made up the leadership of, of this religious system. And as the high priest was the head of the religious system in Israel, Saul went to him for permission and authority to arrest followers of Christ and bring them to Jerusalem. These letters were equivalent to a modern-day arrest warrant from our court system. And it says that Saul was seeking to arrest any who belonged to the way. Now, this phrase was common in the first century to describe or to refer to Christianity. Followers of Christ had not yet been referred to as Christians and were simply known as those belonging to the way. Arguably, this is one of the most accurate but unfortunately least well-known descriptions of being a Christian. The term Christian was not used to refer to followers of Christ until Acts 11 in Antioch. The term the way is likely derived from Jesus' statement about himself in John 14, 6, where he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, whether you've been a follower of Christ for a long time, a relatively new believer, or you're not a follower of Christ at all, we need to understand that we are not followers of a system or a methodology or even a particular lifestyle. We are not, as the world calls us, people of faith. Because when they do that, they want to lump us in with all the other religions. And they eliminate Christ Jesus from the conversation and from the description. We are people of the way. And the way that we follow, worship, and belong to has a name. And his name is Christ Jesus. And we'll see more about this a little later uh, in the passage as, as it relates to the, the, uh, what Paul, or excuse me, Saul. I'm going to mess that up. I'm going to say Paul and Saul, they're the same guy, right? <clears throat> For the moment, however, suffice it to say that we must forever have foremost in our minds that he is not only the object of our faith, but he is the object of everything. Colossians 1, written by Paul later in his life, says in verses 16 and 17, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and importantly for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And so we see here in chapter 9, back in verse 3, he says, As he was traveling, he, Saul, was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
Now we see here a very familiar scene that, that, that we see throughout Scripture. To give us some context, Paul later describes the Lord's appearance to him in more detail in Acts chapter 22 and 26. He says that it was about midday. Now, if you've ever been to the Middle East in midday, you understand that the sun is extremely bright in midday, in the middle of the desert. So when he says that, it, that a bright light shone all around him, He's saying that it was so bright that it outshone the sun. And it shone with such power that he fell to the ground. All throughout scripture, when we see the Lord appear in any way where he has not concealed his glory, stunning bright light is experienced by those who are witness to it. We see this in the way Moses' face shone. After being with the Lord on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. We see it at Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew 17 and then repeated in Mark 9 and Luke 9. And we also see it in the descriptions of the Lord in Revelation 1 and 2. And then finally in Revelation 21 where it tells us that heaven has no need of a sun or a moon because Christ himself will be the only light necessary. I cannot wait to see that. The voice then asks Saul. He asks, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And after Saul asks him who he is, Jesus identifies himself and again states that Saul is persecuting him. Now that's a strange way to phrase it. Saul wasn't knowingly persecuting Christ. To our knowledge, Saul never met Jesus, nor was he a named individual during any of the persecution and inquiry that Jesus faced while on earth. It's possible, but we don't know that. He was just a guy who made a stir, but had been dead for about five years at this point to, to Saul. Saul, who would, who would of course later become Paul, describes his persecution that he engaged in as directed towards the followers of the way, not necessarily Jesus himself. But to answer this, we need to understand more about how Christ sees us as followers of the way. And so if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. It's a few pages over. In Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23, it says, Paul again, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And just in case we have any confusion as to who the church is, 1 Corinthians 12 says, For just as the body is one, and yet has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And if you skip down to verse 27, 
He says, now you are Christ's body and individually parts of it. Seeing ourselves as members of Christ's body with him as the head helps us to better understand Christ's relationship with his people. When a person is changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and made new, we are also now included into the body of Christ. In verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 1 that we just read, notice that it says, For just as the body is one and yet has many parts, and all of the parts of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. He doesn't say, so also are the people of Christ. The point that Paul is driving at here, I believe, is informed, at least in part, by the question Jesus poses to him on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The idea that true believers, followers of the way, are all part of one unified body of Christ is where we get the word church. When you see the word church in the New Testament, as we just saw in Ephesians chapter 1, the original word used was ecclesia. It's a word that we, that we get our English word ecclesiastical, which means relating to the church, or ecclesiology, a doctrine relating to the church in some way. In every instance of its usage in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, through the writer of whichever particular letter or book, refers to, the pe- refers to people corporately or people as part of a local body of believers in a particular area. Now, as we've seen in passages in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, Christ's body, which is one and the same as his church, is not a building in which we meet. Now, if you don't know, Redeemer, uh, for example, this building, uh, used to be an old grocery store, right? And a whole bunch of us got together over the last several years and did a whole bunch of refurbishment, and it is now what you see here today. So do you know what this building became the day that we put a, a Redeemer sign on the front and we began having services here? It became a refurbished grocery store with a Redeemer sign on the front of it, (laughs) right? This is not the church. We are the church. You are the church. If you are part of the true body of Christ, if you have been included into his family, you are the church. We are described as Christ's hands and feet in this world. Now, he certainly does not need us. He could do to every person that he wanted in his kingdom the same thing that he did to Saul and appear to them. He is the sovereign Lord over all, as we will see more clearly in the coming passages. But he, in the counsel of his own will, has chosen to use us to minister to one another as his body and to deliver his gospel to those who are not part of his body. Now, with that as a foundation of understanding, let's turn our attention back to Acts chapter 9. When Jesus asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? He means every, excuse me, every word of that. 
When the world slanders and persecutes, sorry, just thinking of something that happened over Christmas Eve. Slanders or persecutes you or others around the world for being followers of Christ. They're doing that to Christ's body and therefore is directed at him. Jesus said that you shouldn't be surprised when the world hates you because they hated me first. He experiences it. He feels it. And if it's happening to you, know that you don't stand in it alone without reason. There's a sovereign purpose in allowing these things to take place against Christ's own body. And that's what we'll look at now. So I want to draw your attention back to the previous couple of chapters of Acts and see how God's sovereign hand is laid over this whole period of several years. In the beginning of chapter 6 of Acts, we see in verse 9 that it says some men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. Notice the men from Cilicia. As you recall, Saul is from Tarsus, which was the largest city within the region of Cilicia. These are Saul's people. They likely know Saul well. Now we will see that they certainly know him at the end of chapter 7. When we see them laying their garments at Saul's feet while they stoned Stephen to death. In fact, it was likely Saul's presence there as a high-ranking member of the Pharisees that gave them the authority within the religious system to stone Stephen. And we see in Acts chapter 8 that Saul was in full agreement, beginning of 8, in full agreement with his stoning. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and scattered virtually all of the followers of Jesus into the regions of Jude, excuse me, Judea and Samaria. But notice what they did once they were scattered. It says in verse 4 of chapter 8 that they went about preaching the word. And as we read on through chapter 8, we see Philip, by the sovereign hand of God, led to present the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, who church history and tradition tells us brought the gospel back to northern, northeastern Africa. Now keep in mind that Saul is leading the charge within this persecution of God's people as he heads towards Damascus in the beginning of chapter 9. And as he is on the road, he isn't contemplating the truth of the gospel. He isn't wondering, have I, been, have I been wrong? He hasn't come to the conclusion that, you know, some of the things that that guy Stephen said, made, you know, made a lot of sense right before we killed him. He is headed to Damascus, Damascus to forcibly bind and drag back to Jerusalem followers of the way for what is likely to be their execution. It is at this point that Christ appears to him and completely crushes him in a moment. The mere revelation of Christ's glory blinds him until he's healed several days later. Saul's enforcers with whom he was traveling stood speechless. 
And what was the result of the revelation of God's glory to a man who just moments before had as his most prominent goal the utter destruction and murder of all those who would claim the name of Christ? Abject fear, blindness, and silence. And finally, Saul asking the all-important question, Who are you, Lord? The Lord then gives Saul directions to go into Damascus and wait for, an instru- wait for instructions. Notice he doesn't give him any details. He just says, go. A man named Ananias is instructed by God to go see him. Now, Paul describes Ananias later in Acts chapter 22 as a devout man, which means that Ananias was likely a target of Saul's as he was headed towards Damascus. The Lord then tells Ananias that he's given Saul a vision wherein he, is, he sees Ananias coming to him. The instructions given to Ananias are very specific. Which street? Which house? Who is the owner of the house? And that Saul is currently praying. All of these details show us that God is not reacting to the situation. He is sovereign over it. And he is leading it. Ananias then questions things a bit. And he says, Lord, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Now, sometimes we read, I know I do, we read something in the Bible that may not, we may not get the full context of what's being said. And if we sort of put this into our modern day vernacular, he's basically saying, that guy? I know that guy. And he is no friend to us. That guy, that's the guy you want me to go talk to rather than do my best to avoid. But Ananias says, here I am, Lord. And God's response to his question is, in verse 15, the Lord utters an amazing statement that's instructive to all of us. He says in verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. He didn't address Ananias' question. He gave him a command, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. He, Saul, not someone like him, not someone with his qualities or abilities, He is a chosen instrument of mine. Notice the ownership that the Lord exhibits over Saul. This is not someone whom the Lord decided to use once he comes to Christ. The Lord has not sat up in heaven for the years of Saul's life and wrung his hands in the hope that one day Saul would see the truth of the gospel that he's heard for years from those whom he's persecuted. The Lord reaches down and sovereignly says, mine. He sovereignly has chosen Saul to not only do the things he wants him to do, 
but he chose him to become a member of his own body, his church. Now, as we're coming to the end of our time, I want to tie all these things together. If you would turn to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Just a couple pages to the left. And he says in Acts 1, 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they began asking him, him being Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, it is not for you to know periods of time or appointed times which the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest parts of the earth. Now, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we see Stephen's opportunity to preach the gospel directly to the council in Jerusalem. After having been falsely accused by Saul's people from Cilicia and elsewhere. And at the end of chapter 7, we see Saul in some form of leadership at Stephen's stoning. Saul also is able to hear what Stephen said as he describes seeing Christ standing at the right hand of God. Now in the beginning of chapter 8, Saul is leading the persecution of Christ's body, which serves to spread the followers of Christ to Judea and Samaria, directly fulfilling what Jesus said was going to happen. Persecution served as the means and the motivator for the gospel to spread beyond the area in and around Jerusalem. Also in chapter 8, we see Philip explaining the gospel to a man who would take it to North Africa, combined with the conversion of Saul in chapter 9, who would, along with others, begin the taking of the gospel to the othermost parts of the world, a task in which we are still involved today. One of the things we need to take from this section of scripture is that the Lord has his sovereign hand over everything as he builds his church. And that's why we see for thousands of years, his body, the true church has been persecuted, but it will not be defeated because you cannot defeat the body whose head is the sovereign master over all things. I'll close with two thoughts. One of those, for, for those of you who are followers of Christ, and one for those who are not yet. For the Christ followers, tonight is New Year's Eve. Many people will get together and celebrate the close of one year and the beginning of a new with, with all the new things that, that hopefully it holds for you. Many will make resolutions, promises to change their own life in one way or another, eat better, exercise more, be better in some part of your personality, read your Bible more, whatever the case may be. I have another suggestion for you. Commit this year 
to knowing your God more. Commit to seeing him for who he truly is and not merely the Jesus that the world paints him to be little baby in a manger or with children on his knees. Many times we recite Psalm 23 and we take comfort in the fact that he is with me in the valley of the shadow of death. Now, all of these things are true and right, but there's more to it than that. Was he with those believers who were being imprisoned and murdered by Saul and others as they walked through their version of the valley of the shadow of death? Yes, of course he was. But we need to understand that, that's, that he was not only with them in that valley. He made the valley. There is not one square inch of this proverbial valley of the shadow of death that he does not exert perfect sovereign control over. He is master and he is king. And we need to recognize that. The difficulty comes in not knowing what he is doing or why he's doing it or why he's allowing such things. And this is where he commands, his commands to us help us understand how we live our lives in the way Paul later describes himself as a slave to Christ. Jesus instructs us in Luke 9 to deny ourselves and take up his cross and follow him or take up our cross and follow him daily as a matter of fact. Church, this is the way. This is the way. For the people who have not yet bowed their knee to Christ, and maybe you feel as though you are too far gone, you've lived a life that cannot be redeemed. Let me ask you a question. Have you been part of a religious system that was engaged in the wholesale false imprisonment and murder of Christ's own people? Were you a prideful, arrogant member of a religious system that Jesus himself referred to as sons of Satan and led millions away from Christ? Are you guilty of the untold number, uh, the murder of untold number of Christ's people? If not, then you have no claim to the statement that you are too far gone. Now, if you are guilty of this level of evil, then you have an example that God is mighty to save even those who have assaulted and murdered his own. Now, I'll leave you with this. Paul speaking to Timothy towards the end of, end of Paul's life. This is 1 Timothy Chapter 1, 12 through 17. First Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 17. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service. Even though I was previously a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. 
Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. This is the best part. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Mighty God in heaven, we pray that we have glorified your name today, that we have stood out of the way and allowed your Holy Spirit to move. Father, we pray that that exact thing happens, that your Holy Spirit moves, that it matures us, it shows us as your followers, of, as people of the way, who you are and how to more appropriately worship you and follow you. For those who are not yours, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move with them. I pray that they would, you would bring them to yourself today. Father, I specifically pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted as we speak. I think of the believers in Nigeria who were killed Christmas Eve, somewhere between 150 and 200 of them, but they are a small portion of the tens and tens of thousands who have been murdered for your namesake over the past decade. Father God, we pray for their protection. We pray for their comfort. Most of all, we pray that they are able to face their persecution in the way that your servant Stephen did with eyes directed at you and realizing that their life is a vapor, but to serve you in a way that honors your name and glorifies you is everything. Father, help us to set ourselves aside and to follow you, to be people of the way. We love you. We praise you. We give all glory to your name. Amen.